Thank you all for being here tonight. Happy holiday weekend again. There is no such thing as a summer Friday anymore. So we're just going to jump right in. Over 10,000 documents. That is the number of documents that the FBI retrieved from Trump's beach club in August alone. Today, we got a clear picture for the first time of the sheer volume of documents that traveled nearly 1,000 miles from the White House to Trump's Palm Beach Club when a federal judge unsealed a previously unseen and detailed inventory of what the FBI retrieved during its search last month. As a reminder here, Trump's team wanted this to come out, and the Justice Department didn't oppose it. As we continue to await a decision from the judge as to whether or not she'll grant Trump's request for a third-party independent review, that special master, there are two big headlines emerging from today's filing. The first, again, is over 10,000 documents were found at Mar-a-Lago. That is bigly. The second major headline is that the FBI found 48 empty folders marked classified and 42 more empty folders marked return to staff secretary slash military aid. Doing the math here, that is 90 folders that were empty and almost certainly had some important stuff in them. So the first question here is, why were they empty? Where are the documents that belong in those folders? Does the Justice Department have them and we just don't know that yet? Are they still sitting at Trump's home? Were they ripped up and flushed down the toilet? I mean, he does like to do that, you know. Why were they separated from their folders in the first place? We're going to try and get answers in just a minute with our next guest, as well as some expert advice about what this all means. But this is serious stuff here and not, as Trump's lawyers would have you think, a lot like an overdue library book, which is what they actually said in court. Also, let's not forget this detailed inventory lists the Justice Department's likely evidence. It is not some random list of items found in one of Trump's closets that, whoops, oh yeah, that did not belong there. These are items that a magistrate judge in Florida authorized the DOJ to seize from Trump's home because they potentially reflected evidence of crimes, plural. Remember this photo we got Tuesday night. We learned from the inventory list today that the items marked 2A in the picture actually were part of a box that included 99 magazines and other press clippings, 43 empty folders with classified banners, 28 empty folders marked return to staff secretary military aid, and seven documents with top secret classification markings. Those were just some of the items recovered in that one single box in Trump's office, box two. Investigators also found articles of clothing, gift items, magazines, Trump's passports, all jumbled together alongside top secret and confidential documents. That's not just like bad housekeeping. The fact that these items were all found together is meaningful. The fact that classified documents were intermingled with the president's personal items ties their unauthorized possession to Mr. Donald Trump personally, which certainly doesn't look good. And neither does this. In a written brief accompanying the inventory today, the Justice Department also stressed how this is an active criminal investigation. Quote, The investigative team will continue to use and evaluate the seized materials as it takes further investigative steps, such as through additional witness interviews and grand jury practice. The Justice Department is anything but slowing down when it comes to this criminal investigation. And every day, these document reveals, they keep ramping up the pressure on Donald Trump. Honestly, if it feels bad, maybe it's because it is. But don't take my word for it. 
Here is what Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, as in the Bill Barr, here's what he had to say about the whole Mar-a-Lago ordeal. I think the, the whole idea of a special master is a bit of a red herring, even if they're uh, subject to executive privilege. They still belong to the government. Is there any legitimate reason for those materials to be in the president, former president's possession? Uh, no, I, I can't think of a, of a legitimate reason why they, they should have been could be taken out of the uh, government, away from the government, if they're classified. I personally think for them to have taken things to the current point, they probably have pretty good evidence. But the facts are starting to show that they were being jerked around. I think the driver on this from the beginning was, the, was you know, loads of classified information sitting in Mar-a-Lago. People say this was unprecedented. Well, it's also unprecedented for a president to take all this classified information and put him in a country club. Yowza. Joining us now is Nicholas Wu, congressional reporter at Politico, who has been covering the Justice Department's investigation into Trump's mishandling of documents. Nick, thanks for being here. Let's just first start. Uh, you know, when you lose Bill Barr and earlier in the week, Carl Rove, do you think this gives Trump's legal team any pause in terms of their strategy here? So far from what we've seen from Trump's lawyers, this hasn't deterred them at all. Barr is someone who's already broken with Trump previously. We saw Mark Short today, uh, Pence's former chief of staff, also uh, speak critically of the way these documents have been handled. But, you know, you know, Trump is saying one thing and his lawyers are doing another thing in court, and, and they haven't changed their course so far. Indeed, they're still fundraising. Uh, I think there was a fundraising email from Team Trump at timestamp 743, all caps, we gave them much. This is a witch hunt. I do wonder the you know, the document that we got this morning from the Justice Department, the suggestion that they are still interviewing witnesses. What do you what does that tell you about all of this and how the last month has maybe changed the scope of their work? Well, we know for right now that this investigation is still very much in its early stages. Justice Department lawyers have said so much in court, uh, not to mention the fact that we have elections looming. So and this is the time where the Justice Department doesn't like really to try to make these uh, big, potentially politically explosive uh, movements in an investigation. And so uh, we can expect further activity from the Justice Department in this investigation as they take in more evidence, as they talk to more witnesses who are involved. What of um, I want to talk a little bit about the 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 um, detailed inventory. We are going to get to the 43 or 48 empty classified folders. But those folders, the 42 empty folders marked return to staff secretary slash military aid. They didn't say top secret. They didn't say classified. So why are these important? And what do we know from the sort of White House protocol from that? What do we know could be in that kind of folder? Well, right now, there's still a whole lot we don't know about uh, these folders. But it's brought a lot of focus on the staff secretary position. It's something that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a household name, but it's an incredibly important position in a White House. This is the person who handles the paper flow in and out of the Oval Office. And at the very end of the Trump administration, we know that job was vacant. Derek Lyons uh, left the Trump administration uh, in mid-December 2020, uh, leaving, you know, no one in that job for the final month of the Trump administration. And so, uh, 
I, I talked to a former White House staff secretary from the Obama administration, mm-hmm. Raj Dehr, who told me that you know, we don't necessarily know, uh, you know whether these documents are classified or not that were in these folders, but these are still incredibly important things. If they're important enough to make it to the desk of the president of the United States, that is something we should probably care about. Well, I mean, lots of things did make it to the desk of the president of the United States that maybe weren't super important to national security, but the fact that it would needed to be returned right. to the staff secretary would suggest that it was not a piece of paper that could just land in the waste bin, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, these were things about policy that would potentially have to be implemented. And so, yes, even if it's not classified, this could still be something very important. I, I mean, I, then there is Mar-a-Lago itself, right? The more we learn about the porous nature of, of the beach club, the more it seems like, in the words of Joel Brenner, the former head of U.S. counterintelligence, I think Mar-a-Lago is a counterintelligence nightmare. Um, the bulk of these documents were found in a storage area beneath the sort of main quarters. And it sounds like a lot of people were coming in and out of Mar-a-Lago, which is disconcerting if we're talking about the housing of over 100 classified documents, 10,000 pages of material that has national security implications. What more do we know about the sort of transit hub that Mar-a-Lago was? I think it, it kind of sh- speaks to how Trump mixed a lot of both the personal and the professional parts of the presidency, right? He, you know, he was conducting uh, pre- uh, presidential business out of Mar-a-Lago uh, during his presidency and in the post-presidency period as well. And, and this meant that you had lots of people coming through. You had weddings going on, you know, at Mar-a-Lago at the like same time. Like not Trump weddings, like right. other people's weddings. Yeah, yeah, people guys, who yeah. wanted to get married at Mar-a-Lago could, for the correct price, get married at Mar-a-Lago. Exactly. You'd have a wedding going on outside while you have the storage room with potentially all of this, uh, all these documents marked classified, all of this sensitive stuff inside Mar-a-Lago. And so this is what raises concerns, uh, you know, both at NARA and then the DOJ as well, that you have all these people going around these potentially very sensitive documents. I mean, and we're talking about a place that employed a, a large proportion of foreign nationals as staff, which, it, you know, it is not necessarily bad to have someone from another country working for you. But in terms of security purposes, people who could be agents for other foreign governments, it sounds like it would be relatively easy to plant someone inside Mar-a-Lago if, if they had a national, if they were a national and, and of a nation that was not our own. That's certainly a concern, especially seeing the number of incidents that there have been at Mar-a-Lago over the years where you know, foreign nationals were able to go through security or, or even you know, just Americans, too. Uh, this is very much a concern here. I wonder, um, Nick, when we talk about Trump and the material that he was interested in keeping, I mean, it seems questionable about how much detail we're actually going to get in terms of anything beyond the classified designations or non-classified designations. But the New York Times has interesting reporting today talking about Trump's tastes in intelligence, the kinds of things he might have squirreled away. We're talking about uh, data, intel on um, world leaders, um, his personal, their personal relationships, his personal relationships with them, um, extramarital affairs they may have been having, the kind of dirt that you would want in the most New York sort of tabloid sense of the world, word, um, the size and power of the U.S. nuclear arsenal, something that he has particularly been fixated on in terms of what hasn't yet been found in the Mar-a-Lago search, um, military and intelligence briefings about Iran, certainly something you'd want to keep under wraps if you were storing classified information at your beach house. And the um, assassination of JFK, which I mean, listen, I have interest in, as well as operations to take out high value targets like uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi from ISIS. Um, Nick, do we, 
Is it dangerous to extrapolate um, Trump's taste and intelligence as far as what may be in the storage of files here uh, in Mar-a-Lago? And what is your expectation about the security review that is being done at DNI? Well, we know that Trump was never really someone who was all that keen on the details of all of these uh, classified information and all of these, all of this intelligence that came through the Oval Office. And that's where probably a lot of the interest in the, the, the somewhat more salacious details comes from. And you know, it comes, you know, we got to remember that one, one of the items listed on the receipt uh, for the document seized at Mar-a-Lago was uh, just this one item labeled information about the president of France. Um, I had asked the embassy of France about that. They declined to comment. We don't know what that is at but this the, point. The, the French- were worried, were right. they not, when this was first disclosed, this information that Trump had Macron files down at Mar-a-Lago? Well, we don't necessarily know which president of France, uh, but it, it's still something that if I were a foreign government and I see something like this, you know, sitting at Mar-a-Lago, it would certainly raise uh, concern. But, um, yeah. <laughs> the point is, his tastes in intelligence and the little we do know about the files found in Mar-a-Lago, there is some cross-pollination there. Yes. And we will see. I'm sure Avril Haines knows exactly what is in there or is learning exactly what is in there. And right. at some point we will learn maybe more, probably at Trump's behest. Exactly. Nicholas Wu, always good to see you. Congressional reporter of Politico. Thanks for coming on set. And now I want to turn to Mark Zaid, an attorney who's pretty much an expert when it comes to cases involving national security and security clearances. Mark, thank you for joining us. My first question is the folders. Thanks, Alex. Um, <laughs> my first question is the folders and what what we should sort of understand or presume about these missing documents or empty folders. Perhaps the documents aren't missing. I mean, when you heard that there were 48 empty folders with classified designations, do you assume that the Justice Department already has those in its possession? Or, I mean, what is your thesis on, on those? Yeah, substantively, honestly, I wasn't that concerned because I have a vision in my mind as to how everything left the White House. And it is literally that someone took their arm and swept the entire desk off into boxes, no matter what was there. So I always say, if someone did that to my desk, there's an empty can of Red Bull uh, and a stapler and and maybe some attorney-client privilege documents and the like. I have these same, some of these same file folder uh, cover photos of of classified records with no classified info in them. Of course, the government gave them to me. Now I don't I don't keep 48 of them because I don't need 48 of them. But I kept one as a souvenir. So I think these could just be souvenirs that they kept, or they just swept them up. What's more important to me with respect to these folders, these marked classification folders, is that whoever would have looked in the box would have been under the impression of hmm. Maybe there's something in these boxes that we should be looking for to make sure there is no classified information <laughs> in the cartons. That's what I'd like to know more about. Uh, you know, your, your, your compatriot, Bradley Moss, tweeted today effectively that if there was uh, an empty folder that was originally used to properly store classified records, there will be documentation indicating who put the records in that folder, why they were placed there, and what the records were. So I'm reading that thinking, we're going to actually know if the, if the folders are not, or the, if the data, the documents that were in the folders are not actually in the Justice Department's possession. Is that fair? I don't know if there's honestly any markings on them. I mean, just think about it. You know, back in your office, you probably have empty blank manila folders. 
You know, in my office, sometimes I have manila folders that were from prior clients that I've emptied the contents, destroyed them, and I've reused the, the manila folder. But there's no other markings on them. And at least in when I've dealt with these cover sheets, there's generally nothing on the cover sheet other than a standard format to indicate that the contents are classified if there are, in fact, contents in them. So we may or may not know. Now, what we do know is that those that were in the White House with him, people like John Bolton, have indicated that they tried not to give classified records to the president because they were concerned of what might happen to them, but that sometimes they acknowledged they failed and they forgot to get the records back. And ostensibly, either that's what a lot of these records are or someone specifically actually grabbed some of them, perhaps under orders of the president. That's something we're going to need to find out. I want to know more about the Office of the Director of National Intelligence's review in all of this, right? Because that's happening concurrent to all of this. When we're talking about right. human intelligence sources that may have been compromised by the, the storage of this material down at Trump's Beach Club, are th is this kind of, I mean, what is the response at DNI? Do they, I mean, does this have real world, real time implication on in, in terms of ongoing CIA operations? I mean, what's happening here as if they discover that people or sources may have been compromised? Well, all of that could be true. And the reality is we may and maybe even likely never know about that because the more sensitive of the classified information will likely never come to light because it's so sensitive they won't prosecute anyone pertaining to those particular files. Because generally speaking, that means that information is going to have to be revealed in some shape or form in an unclassified summary under the Classified Information Procedures Act, or maybe even declassified. And in fact, the jury would have access to the information even without a clearance, even though they'd be instructed they're not allowed to, to repeat it to anyone. But still, it might not be worth the risk of allowing anyone to know. There are so many classified marked records that are, have been recovered, that the lower level classification documents could be the ones that serve as the uh, source for prosecution. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I, it is worth mentioning, though. I mean, this has happened before, right? In, in I think, 2017, the U.S. had to extract a top spy from inside Russia because of a meeting Trump had in the Oval Office. Isn't that right? I believe. Uh, yes, the decision to carry out the extraction of the Russian inside the Kremlin occurred soon after a May 2017 meeting in the Oval Office in which Trump discussed highly classified intelligence with the Russian foreign minister and the then Russian ambassador to the U.S. So, I mean, it has happened before that Trump's, you know, whims have really compromised high-level intelligence operations. We found out about it there you're saying we may not find out about it at present and that, in fact, the lower, less classified information may be what's used in the in the lawsuit that's building up. Yeah, entirely. And Chuck Rosenberg spoke in the last hour on the program, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, where a lot of these cases end up being prosecuted because it's the CIA's backyard. And he was absolutely right that oftentimes you see a classified record and you sort of scratch your head trying to figure out well, why is that significant? It says that Putin has Apple Jacks for breakfast every morning. Why would that be classified? Well, that's not the classified information. It's the source 
that provided that information to one of our agencies and that placement of that source. And if anyone who knows the information, if the Russians got a hold of that, they could know, well, there's only two people who know that Putin gets Apple Jacks for breakfast every morning and that source would be burned. Now, hopefully we'll never find out something like that because, again, it's too sensitive. But the the DNI and other agencies will assess whether or not the damage, if any, has been caused by who's been present at Mar-a-Lago, who had access to the boxes based on the surveillance film that the FBI seized by a search warrant uh, in late June. Uh, And I mean, a lot of that will be very telling and we'll know as time goes by either what we actually will never know or obviously substantively what will be revealed publicly. We know what we'll never know. I like that version of the known unknowns. Mark Zaid, an attorney who specializes in cases involving national security and security clearances. Fascinating conversation. Mark, thank you for your time. Thanks, Alex. For a Justice Department that is usually loath to share details about its investigations, Merrick Garland's DOJ has done an about-face this week. Up next, one of President Obama's U.S. attorneys who's challenged the department to be more forthcoming weighs in on this latest disclosure. And the day after the president warned about the threat Donald Trump poses to democracy, civil rights leaders go to the White House to ring the alarm about the danger just on the horizon. We will talk to one of those leaders. Stay with us. Now seeing what we see and also seeing what's redacted, do you, is there enough transparency from DOJ here? I don't think there is. Uh, I think no. ultimately Merrick Garland's job here is to give buy-in from the American public that the investigation is being conducted fairly and transparently. And ultimately the American people are the jury on this case. They need to know what the evidence is against the former president. You can't just suddenly indict a former president without telling the public why. Yeah. That was the former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia under President Obama, making the case early this week that the Justice Department had not yet been transparent enough about the reason for the August 8th Mar-a-Lago search. He said the public had to know why. That was Monday, just a few days after we got a redacted version of the affidavit justifying the FBI's Mar-a-Lago search. In the four days since then, we have been inundated with information from the DOJ that answers the question why. We have learned why the FBI went to Trump's beach club, what Trump had there, where he had it, and what lies the Justice Department was apparently told. On Tuesday, the DOJ submitted a 36-page filing explaining that investigators, quote, developed evidence that government records were likely concealed and removed from the storage room and that efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation. We got this photo of some of those classified documents as an illustration of the volume of top secret documents Trump had stashed at his Florida home, despite his lawyers telling the DOJ both in person and on paper on June 3rd that they had turned over all of the classified documents. On Wednesday, Trump's lawyers disputed the government's description of that June 3rd attestation and meeting, implying Trump's lawyers did nothing wrong. And on Thursday, the judge overseeing this case said she would make public the Justice Department's detailed list of what the FBI took during its search last month. Today, that is exactly what we got. Thanks to that inventory, we now know that in addition to the 100-plus classified records the DOJ previously disclosed, FBI agents retrieved over 10,000 government documents with no classification marked. They also found 48 empty folders marked classified, which, of course, begs the question, Does Donald Trump have more classified government records or worse, 
does someone else? Setting that a question aside for now, is this the kind of detailed evidence that can sway folks who still want to believe that the DOJ is conducting a witch hunt? Joining us now is John Fishwick, former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia, who was appointed by President Obama in 2015. Mr. Fishwick, thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you, Alex, for having me on your show. So let's talk about, you know, it's the end of the week, the beginning of the week. You were skeptical about the Justice Department's transparency. What would you grade them now? I'd give them a, a very good grade. I'm a tough grader, but I'd give them a B plus. Um, they really were transparent this week, and I think it's great. You know, with the court filing, they laid out to the American people the basic case that they're investigating against former President Trump. And that case is that he had a bunch of documents, classified top secret documents, that there doesn't seem to be any good reason that they were at Mar-a-Lago. And then when the, the government began their investigation, a number of folks in his orbit have been dishonest with law enforcement. Uh, when asked questions about it. And that's, you know, obstruction of justice, also potentially lying to a federal agent. So I think the American public can understand that and can see the, the detailed facts. You know, a picture tells a thousand words, the, the documents on the floor, the top secret classifications. I think that gave people a real sense of what the investigation is. So I think that was great that the uh, uh, DOJ filed that brief and laid it out for the public. Ultimately, the public is going to have to uh, buy into what the DOJ is doing, that they see it, that it's a based on facts and law and not based on politics. And I think they took some big steps this week to show that their investigation is based on facts and law. I wonder if you think the groundwork has been laid enough to support a potential criminal indictment here. Well, uh, Alex, clearly the folks who have, you know, a number of folks in uh, Trump's orbit, you know, were dishonest with law enforcement. And so that those cases are locked in. Now, whether Department of Justice is going to bring those cases, time will tell, but those are locked down. And in fact, I would disagree with some folks. I think they've done a lot of interviews. They would have done a lot of interviews before uh, they did that search warrant, because once the search warrant takes place, a lot of folks who were reluctant to talk to them are probably not going to talk to them. Those who have been talking to them will continue. But I think they've locked down some criminal activity and they're waiting to you know, cross their cross some T's and, and dot some I's. Obviously, they want to look at these final documents that they've collected. But I think they're pretty far along uh, as relates to uh, this investigation. Interesting. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on how Trump's team has responded to all this. They have hammered home very hard and repeatedly this notion of executive privilege. They keep invoking it. I mean, Bill Barr today pushed back on it. Other people have pushed back on it. Legal minds have pushed back on it. What do you think about the strength of that defense? And what do you think about their continuing invocation of executive privilege? Well, as of today, Alex, that's a weak uh, privilege. You know, a former governor, government official, ex-president has very few legal rights as relates to asserting the privilege. It's been pretty clear based on President Nixon cases that that the current president makes those decisions. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. If we had every former government employee telling the current government what to do, it'd be a real a real mess. However, I think the Trump strategy is going to be to appeal on this issue and to and to drag it out. They've they've got some sympathetic folks in the United States Supreme Court. Now, it's not going to block the investigation. It's kind of a sleepy thing. This executive privilege, your viewers may get tired of hearing about it. It's, it's going to maybe delay it. I think it's important for Merrick Garland and his troops to be vigilant, to make sure this doesn't muck the whole thing up and stall it too long. I think it's going to drag on for a while. I think 
the, the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court may create some new law in this area. But ultimately, uh, I would urge Eric Merrick Garland to do what my, my father used to tell me is to keep your eye on the donut. Keep your eye on what's important. <laughs> and what's important is the criminal investigation here, uh, not the executive privilege. That's part of it. you got to pay attention. But you do keep, need to keep your eye on the donut. That's very interesting. You think they could be trying to run this up the, the, the flagpole to get it to the Supreme Court to develop new law around the executive privilege? And I think it's fairly easy to do that because there are not many cases on it. If you think about it, ex-presidents, litigation. I mean, I think it's just Nixon. So it, it's 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 very scarce law, which is opportunity for judges to create new law. Again, it's not going to stop the investigation. It may delay it. And I think that's going to be important for DOJ to say, OK, we're going to we're going to fight it out over these documents. But we want it on we want it on an expedited uh, schedule. And I think that can be achieved. But I, I do expect it to be appealed no matter what happens with the judge now on the appointment of the special master and no matter how it's ruled on by the district court. I do think this is going to come a little bit of a sideshow as relates to executive privilege that's going to drag on for some time, but it's not it's not going to stop the investigation. Well, and uh, Trump has found a lot of political utility in, in staging a, a sideshow when there are important investigations underway. So it's not it's not nothing that this could be, you know, a little carnival over in the distance. John Fishwick, former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia, appointed by President Obama in 2015. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Still ahead here tonight, right-wing media goes berserk, reacting to President Biden's speech, warning about things like the demonic lighting. I am not kidding. Meanwhile, civil rights leaders go to the White House with a stark warning that has nothing to do with lighting and everything to do with democracy. That is next. Last night, President Biden laid out his thesis about the crisis facing America, radicalized factions that pose existential threats to our republic by undermining the democratic process, personal freedoms and national security. And this is how the right wing responded. Joe Biden really has crossed over into a very dangerous, very dangerous place. He was talking about how half the country are basically domestic terrorists. President Biden tonight gave the speech of a dictator in the style of a dictator, in the visual of a dictator. The imagery there was almost satanic with that blood red uh, lighting and the two Marines behind him. It was just insane. Yeah, they're a threat, says the guy with the blood red Nazi background and Marines standing behind him. It's totally immoral. You spend a not insignificant amount of time criticizing the lighting in a speech about an existential crisis. It is possible you might be missing the point. But anyway, by contrast, this is how people who understand those stakes reacted. Today, a group of prominent civil rights leaders met with President Biden to talk about what's being called a national state of emergency for democracy and voting rights. And they made it very clear that the battle for the soul of the nation is part of a longer war against the forces of white supremacy. I stand here today with my civil rights colleagues in our call in amplifying the alarm that we've been sounding for a very long time, that our democracy is in peril, that we are facing an existential crisis that black people have known for a very long time. White supremacy 
is undermining the very fabric of democracy for every single American. The impact of voters this November was sent a clear message that democracy is worth protecting and white supremacist activity is a danger to our democracy. Those civil rights leaders spoke with President Biden about this year's midterms, specifically the threats to voting rights and to poll workers across the country. And there was plenty to discuss. Since 2020, there has been a wave of voter suppression laws passed in Republican-controlled states, laws that make it harder for black and brown communities to exercise their fundamental democratic rights, and laws that cede control of elections administration to partisan elected officials. A recent report from the group States United for a Democracy found that 244 bills that would interfere with elections administration have been introduced in 33 states, and 24 of those bills have already become law. And then there are the poll workers themselves. This month, a Texas county saw all of its election officials resign. One official cited the death threats and stalking that she's faced from election conspiracy theorists. To give you a sense of just the utter sheer terror these civil servants have experienced. The Brennan Center for Justice compiled testimonials from some poll workers in the aftermath of the 2020 election. They had assault rifles. A pipe bomb. You're gonna get what's coming to you. They threatened my life. Couldn't go anywhere without the police officers. When we had officers on the roof of our building. I've never had people so engaged and enraged about what we were doing just to ensure that people could vote. We had go bags ready for my family and my children. He will demand the truth and you will pay for your lying remarks, you liberal lying rhino. Protecting the vote means a whole constellation of things. It means ensuring access to the vote itself. It means keeping poll workers safe, making sure that the elections officials in charge of the vote are actually responsible stewards of the democratic process. It's not simple and it's not easy, especially right now. And it might just get harder. We will talk with one of the leaders who met with the president to take on one of the most consequential and urgent issues facing the country. That interview is next. You could hear in the president's speech last night, uh, you could hear in this meeting today, there is alignment about protecting democracy. We know that black Americans are among the hardest working, most patriotic people in this country. And we need a democracy that works for black America and that works for all of America. We need a democracy that does not condone, allow, or facilitate attacks on its own people. Whether that be through voter suppression, whether that be what we saw during the January 6th insurrection, whether that be through police and state violence, or whether that be through white supremacy, which drives a lot of what we're seeing. And so that alignment with the president is there. What we need to do is use political muscle in the civil rights community and also among elected officials to push this agenda forward. That was civil rights attorney Damon Hewitt, who, along with leaders of seven other black-led civil rights organizations, declared a state of emergency for democracy earlier this week. Those leaders met with President Biden today on the heels of the president's own stark warning last night about the growing threat to democracy from authoritarian and white supremacist forces in the Republican Party. Joining us now is Damon Hewitt, the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Mr. Hewitt, thank you for being here tonight. Thanks for having me, Alex. So I want to get your thoughts on this this sort of very careful um, needle the president was trying to thread in his remarks last night. He said 
repeatedly there is a difference between Republicans and MAGA Republicans. And then you look at polling on one of the sort of most basic things in our democracy, the right to vote, and what happened in the 2020 election. I think it's something like 70% of Republicans say they don't think Joe Biden is a legitimate winner of the 2020 election. Do you think people of color see a difference between Republicans and MAGA Republicans? Well, look, I I think that people of color, we can make fine distinctions and see differences. Uh, We know who's for us and who's against us, uh, number one. And that does not always uh, stay w- within the, the ranks of a certain uh, single party. Uh, it's really about who uses their leverage, their sweat equity, their capital towards the interests of Black America, and in this case, towards the interests of democracy. And so I think there's a pretty clear distinction about who does and who does not. Do you, I mean, what did you think, who do you think was the intended audience of the president's remarks last night? On one hand, you would think it's some of those middle of the road Republicans. And yet the response almost uniformly from the Republican Party and from conservatives today has been one of unrelenting criticism. They say that that President Biden has in some ways galvanized, I think, the right wing to, to, you know, organize against him. What, where is the change supposed to happen? Go ahead. Right. Those are desperate pleas. I heard the president speaking to multiple audiences. Uh, He was speaking to his base to let them know that he understands and sees what's happening and he's not willing just to play nice and sit by and allow it it to happen. Uh, He was speaking to what's left of the movable middle to say, if you actually care about this country, uh, then you should actually listen to what I have to say. You should follow the policies, uh, policy direction that I'm taking. Uh, He was also speaking to uh, people you may call the never Trumpers uh, out there, I'm sure uh, the, there's a big question mark, obviously, as to whether those people will swing his way again. But I think he was also speaking to us in the civil rights and advocacy community because we are in multiple fights on multiple fronts. And we need to see this president standing up and calling it like it is. And that's exactly what we saw in such an eloquent way uh, last night. And then you had some time with the president today, right? I mean, this is a meeting that is many, way, many ways following up on what the president talked about, but also it dovetails with the work that you guys are doing as a coalition. What was the meeting about and what's the, what's the plan to save democracy? Because we all want to know. Right. Well, this was a part of a series of meetings with the civil rights community that's been planned uh, since this president and vice president took office. So uh, it's, it's not a uh, you know surprise that we're meeting. We will be there again and we'll, we'll talk about it again. Uh, but today, our messages coalesced around a broad sense of what it takes to protect democracy and the very fact that democracy is under threat. Uh, At the Lawyers Committee, we talk a lot about the promises of democracy. It's about economic opportunity and the the notion of not just having a living wage, but having a chance to have prosperity. Uh, Just the simple fact of being able to cast a ballot, have that vote count, and have the winner of the election actually be seated. Uh, Concepts that should not be novel. And so we talked about today a broad notion of what democracy means, what it takes to protect it. And there are some areas of context in terms of what the best pressure points should be and what the right policies should be. But overall, there was strong alignment that bringing to America, bringing to black America, to brown America, to America overall, a message about the importance of preserving democracy is of utmost importance right now. Do you, I mean, is any of that, I mean, the conversation is occurring, but in terms of an action plan, is there anything that can be executed before the midterms? Because I think a lot of people are terrified about what happens in November. That's right. So, look, legislative proposals did not move. The John Lewis 
Voter Rights Advancement Act uh, and the like, electoral, uh, you know, Counts Act reform, what have you. But the president did issue an executive order on voting, uh, on elections. And that that executive order, among other things, allows federal agencies or enlists federal agencies uh, in the mission of getting voters registered. Uh, we yeah. need to see more uptake from federal agencies. My understanding is that as of late spring, early summer, only two federal agencies had signed up to uh, make sure that all of their offices around the country were voter registration sites. So we need to change that. Uh, we need to mobilize and do what's possible in terms of election monitoring. There are some severe limitations uh, on DOJ now after the Shelby decision in 2013. Uh, but some state AGs are now empowered uh, to do things of that sort. You saw favorable laws in Virginia, New York. Of course, those are not states in the Deep South, uh, which are of great concern. Uh, but there are buttons that can be pushed. And also, we're mobilizing in civil society. Uh, at the Lawyers Committee, we convene the National Election Protection Coalition. Our election protection hotline, 866-OUR-VOTE, is operating every single day uh, with expanded hours as we approach election day. So we, we have to move and shake in so many ways. There's no easy button, Alex. There's no one federal prescription at this point, especially without legislation. I will say this, however. President Biden expressed a significant openness and eagerness even today to try again on federal voting rights legislation that will protect the right to vote. Of course, that's not likely to happen in this Congress. Yeah. And in fact, the election this this fall uh, really a lot hangs in the balance in terms of those results. But he expressed an openness and an eagerness to make a renewed push. A lot does hang in the balance, and that is an understatement. Da Damon, Hewitt, the pre Damon Hewitt, the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Keep fighting the good fight, please, Mr. Hewitt. Thank you for joining us tonight. Every day, Alex. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. That does it for us tonight. Have an excellent Labor Day this weekend. We will see you again on Tuesday.